Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Living free. Welcome to Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855kHz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past and present, and to acknowledge that this land was stolen and sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drug, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. This week I'm joined in the studio by Claude, who's recovering from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So welcome, Claude. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> um, so, Claude, um, we had a bit of a chat before the show, um, and you also mentioned that you have, um, drug is- have had drug issues as well. Uh, and are also a member of Narcotics Anonymous. So we'll, we'll talk a bit, bit about that as well. But usually we start by talking about growing up and the things that influenced you, what family life was like and school and stuff like that. So what was your early life like? Oh, my early life was, um, well, a non-English speaking household, um, which is not really a term that was used back then, but um, my parents migrated from Sicily, father in 1953, my mother in 1955. And when I came along, um, they were still just learning English. So basically we were a migrant immigrant or migrant family. And uh, yeah, I just came into this world like anyone else, but um, my upbringing, well, yeah, that left a lot of question marks in my life. Um, I was the unplanned child, so yeah, makes it difficult, doesn't it? Yeah, I was the unplanned child, and look that. Looking back, I can see where that created a lot of stress for my father. Typically, back then, the father worked, the mother didn't. That was how it was. Um, so we're talking early sixties here. And uh, when I came along, my father had to take on extra work, so he went to his day job and then also worked in the evening, and I know that created a lot of stress. Um, and look, unfortunately, like my father, he was not an alcoholic, but he was a very angry man, and later in life I learned to understand why he was the way he was but as a kid I didn't understand what was going on and yeah as a look I had a extremely violent upbringing it was um very confusing in the way that I also had a very loving father um he was very loving but at the same time he was extremely violent and um and I had a mother that he was standing in the middle of this not knowing what to do and look that was at a time when a woman and 
and kids were seen as a man's possessions. That's how it was at the time. That's how society looked at it. There was nowhere to turn. There was nowhere to get help. My father couldn't get help. No, no. You know, no. there was no help for him. So I, looking back, I see him as much a victim as what I was, um, where I spent most of my life looking at, at him as just a, a perpetrator and myself as a victim. But, yeah, looking back, I see a victim right there as well. He was a victim too, a victim of society standards. Men don't seek help. Men don't cry. Men don't talk about their problems. You just got to suck it up, be a man, and handle it. And um, I can, looking back, I can see how destructive that that social view, that social way of being, how destructive that was on on my life. Um, so, do you think um, there was any alcoholism in your grandparents? I know, I know that my mother's father um, was an alcoholic. So it's what my maternal grandfather, he is an alcoholic. I never knew him because my mother's parents and half her family migrated to America and some of them migrated to Australia. So I'd never met him and he passed away when I was only three years old. And um, I actually do remember that because I remember back then the Italian thing was you dress in black for a whole year when a family member passes away. And I do vividly remember that. And I knew what had happened even at that young age. I never met him. Um, I know there was no violence or anything in his family because of his alcoholism. Um, My grandmother from my mother's side, I only met briefly for three months in 1973 when she came out here from America she was a good woman. I just wish I had have had her in my life for my, you know, the whole time. She was meant to come back two years later. Instead, she passed away two years later from cancer. Mm. Um, very shattered as a child from that. On my father's side, um, my grandmother passed away one month before I was born. And my grandfather was there till I was 12 years old, but I never had a relationship with him. He was a hard man from his own upbringing in Sicily. I've learnt later that that was a very difficult life. I've only learnt that very recently Mm. from reading about the history of Sicily. He grew up in a very difficult period. Um, I know he was towards my father like my father was towards me. Same deal. You don't ask for help. There's no help. You're a man. Suck it up. Um, And yes, he was. He was a hard old man, and I just never had a relationship with him. Mm. So I really didn't have any relationship with any grandparents, really, beyond the three months that my grandmother lived with us in 1973. Mm. Uh, And as as a kid, I felt really mm, very deprived or something not quite right so So what what was your earliest exposure to alcohol well the italian or sicilian community i should say they will drink um not saying they're alcoholics so there definitely was some alcoholics amongst them but uh, around family 
direct family and family friends in the greater Sicilian community at the time, definitely always alcohol present, you know, beer, wine, the, the grappa, the spirits, yeah. the brandy yeah. was all there. And um, my father was, was not an alcoholic, um, so he drank normal. Yeah. So there was alcohol in the house. Um, and look, it was a... Something that's probably not acceptable today, but back then it was acceptable to give kids a bit of wine or a bit of beer mixed with lemonade because the kids, you know, as a kid, oh, what's dad drinking? I want some of that. Yeah. And yeah. not just with my father, but in that community in general, that was not seen as, hey, you're giving a kid drugs, alcohol. It's, it wasn't seen like that. It was, um, it was normal. So I think um, I developed a bit of a taste for it right back then. Yeah. <laughs> I can see the funny side of that. Yeah. Um, but in terms of like it not being given to me where I was just taking it, uh, I remembered at around five years old, I was already going behind people's backs. My dad's back to, you know, get to his beer or to his wine and a conversation I had with a cousin a few years ago a cousin that's 15 years older than me she said look I, I noticed you doing that when you were three years old yeah uh, that's early have, isn't it yeah there'd be family gatherings and you know there's you know glasses of beer glasses of wine glasses of brandy whiskey lying around the place and of course non-alcoholics will leave some in the glass yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they don't have a it's need just to a drink. Poli- yeah, yeah they don't need to polish the glass. Well, that's um, when I swung into action. <laughs> I'd be going around empty and basically polishing those glasses. And uh, and also, my father. Look, back in those days, beer only came in large bottles, the long necks. There were no stubbies. So my father would open a, a bottle of beer, but he would recap that, put it in the fridge, and that might be there for two, three days. Because mm. once again, but not being an alcoholic, he could just have a glass and leave it. And I already had worked out at that young age how much of that beer I could get into yeah. without him really noticing. Yeah. <laughs> so I had it all worked out as like, you know, like a three, four-year-old. And... Um, he drank um, he drank beer mainly in summer, and in winter he would you know drink wine with his meal. So we're talking drinking with your meal, not just mm. drinking for the sake of drinking. And same with the wine, I worked out how much I could have without anybody noticing. And of course, once again with the family gatherings, I, I just had a free run. Mm. It was just mm. all there, yeah. and it's no good. one's really watching that kid. No. Can you remember what it did for you? Did it make you feel different or good? Or I don't have a really strong memory, but I, I could say this much for sure. The fact that I was getting away with it, yeah. there would have been that sense of excitement. I, yeah. Just knowing how I am, that there was definitely, I'm getting away with this and no one's really noticing, or if they noticed, they weren't saying anything. Mm. Um, definitely rebellious definitely a rebellious thing the other kids were not doing the same thing i was doing that Mm. and i was getting away with it and i was happy about that but when i look back i can also see that as a kid i was in extreme fear 
I was in extreme fear of the, the physical violence and alcohol will numb me to that. It numbs our feelings. So even if I wasn't aware of it at the time, that would have been a major attraction Yeah. to simply yeah. escape the reality because mm. my life was a combination of a great, fantastic social upbringing and an absolute horror story all rolled into one. Yeah. And mm. it definitely would have eased the horror story. Mm. And socially, even back then, I became yeah. a happy kid. <laughs> Strangely and enough. The good old social lubricant that alcohol is. Yeah. 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 So talking about school then and, and those sort of things, having English as a second language at school must have been difficult for you? No, I, I got to wait. My brother would have gone through that being he's four and a half years older than me. What was a common thing back then? So that particular migration wave was mainly the Sicilian Calabrian of Italians and Greek. And it was nothing unusual for the first child to go to school, not knowing a word of English and having to learn English at school. The second child often didn't go through that, especially if there was a few years gap. And in my case, there was a four and a half year gap. So I was born pretty much when my brother started going to school just before but by the time i was speaking my brother already knew english yeah from going to school so you learned from him so i I pretty much learned from him yeah so i had my brother speaking to me in english my parents speaking to me in sicilian me replying i'm not sure what i would have replied in those earliest days probably a combination of both and today my 92 and a half year old mother still speaks to me in Sicilian. Yeah. <laughs> and I speak to her back in English. It's just <laughs> standard for us. Yeah. Um, so when I went to school, no, that wasn't really a problem. But what I do remember being a problem is that when I was in a class with either, there was obviously other Italians um, or Sicilians, and um, and then you had your, your more Anglo kids, you know, like mm. the English, Irish, Scottish, they were the dominant yeah. sort of um, nationalities at the time within, the, within being Australian. And I didn't understand a lot of things that those cultures do understand, like certain songs or certain sayings or these books that they all tended to know about and to me that was totally foreign Mm. so i still was effectively living in a foreign land because i didn't have i wasn't fed like english empire history yeah i was not fed that as a child and this was happening all around so there was still this sense of i wasn't good enough because i wasn't one of them yeah So. so did things change when you went to secondary school Secondary school, well, through primary school, things were okay. Um, I was an agro kid, by the way. And um, in secondary school, there was, um, let's just say there wasn't as many Italians. So I feel I felt a bit more left out. There was a bit of what we call, you know, the the WOG versus Aussie thing going on. there was a fair bit of that, um, but that all that all just sort of faded yeah. out. We're, ultimately, we we're still all friends. Yeah. But we had these little rivalries going, but that, that was okay yeah. when I look back. So, did you have plenty of friends? Um, friend or kid? Yeah and no. Yeah. I I had friends, but I always felt a little bit alienated. I always felt different. I always felt not good enough. 
I used to get caught up in the thinking where if only I look like him, if only I could make people laugh like he does, if only I had like her personality, mm. if only I looked as good in those clothes as that person it was always, I was always sort of an envy of yeah. in externalizing, yeah. Yeah. looking around me thinking everything's better and I'm never good enough. I'm never enough. Um, and really, really let that get to me. And I, look, I already noticed depression kicking in in primary school where I knew there was something wrong. Um, I was losing motivation, things that I was interested in. Um, I was always fighting with people, you know, both physically and verbally. Um, a general um, state of was a you know, distance between myself and my peers um, and you know, I was becoming increasingly unpopular as well mm. yeah did your alcohol consumption increase in secondary school secondary school it did so through yeah. primary school I pretty much continued what I was already doing sneaking yeah, my dad's right. grog and um, and you know at family gatherings going for it there and in secondary school well then we started you know older kids could buy it and um because i had a bit of facial hair at a young age i could get away with going yeah. to going to pubs because of course ids and you know having id on you and all that was not a thing back then um things were not really questioned as much as they are now. No, no, <laughs> so, it was all profits, yeah. Yeah, those types <laughs> of laws were not really enforced. And, of course, the first paper licence, yeah. when it was paper, of course, we'd photocopy it, scrape a year the year off, put in another one and re-photocopy it. And, yeah. and they'd look at that and go, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we got away with all of that. But, yeah, we started drinking more i started drinking more outside of the the house and the family circle um now finding other friends that were happy to get drunk in the park on a friday and saturday night um we'd get our pocket money together and buy um yeah cheap stuff (laughs) (laughs) um cheap stuff that did the job yeah and got us drunk very quickly and yeah, look, it was fun at the time, and and certainly not all those kids that I did that with became alcoholics. They certainly did not. Yeah, it was a combination of just you know people like myself that had a problem, mm. and kids just being kids. That's fine, and kids are doing that today, and they're not all becoming alcoholics or no. drug addicts. No. Um, no. so that was that was fun, but I found as time went on, I started becoming more punch happy when I drink and um, I was the one most likely to get into a fight or actually just to turn on the person that I was with yeah um, so it didn't always make me happy or well, it made me happy but then as I drank more it made me angry mm. and um, that's and pretty it, common yeah and it didn't always do that no. but there were times but yeah. if if a fight started, you could be assured that I was in it. Yeah. I was a part of it. Um, and as a kid, I, th- I thought, no, I think I was proud of that. When I look back, I think, oh, idiot. <laughs> but that's what happens. Um, well, listen, we might take a uh, short break there. Um, we've got a song. Um, this one's Friday on My Mind by the Easy Beats. 
Every moment feels so bad Everybody seems to nag me Coming Tuesday I feel better Even my old man looks good Wednesday just don't go Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. Welcome back. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, uh, you can find us on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. Today I'm talking with Claude and we're talking about alcoholism and recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so Claude, before the break we were talking about 
um, secondary school and things. So I guess the next thing is going out to work. So what was the transition out, out to work and, I guess, out of the family home like? Hey, so back then I, I did an apprenticeship um, in one of the construction trades. Um, definitely a very good trade. And, um, and I'm still in a follow-on from that trade now. Uh, so I left school at 16 because back then there was no need to finish no. school, go all the way back, um, what we called Form 4 back then or Year 10 today, I left. Um, I did have uh, one year in between where I just did odd jobs and on the dole. And then I started my apprenticeship the following year and... Oh, look, straight away there were there were problems there because um, by that time I wasn't only drinking, I was also drugging as well. And um, so I was the kid that would go hard all weekend and then if I did turn up to work on Monday, I was in no state to really be there. Um, I came to the attention of you know, a lot of the tradesmen there and um, known as a very lazy person that didn't want to do much. And uh, <laughs> Was that only on Monday or was that in general? <laughs> uh, as time went on, that was every day. <laughs> that was just me in general, but it usually starts with a Monday. Yep. But then eventually the weekend spills into Monday and Tuesday. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's... Um, I don't know how I managed to, to do that apprenticeship. The schooling for that apprenticeship was fairly intense. And then, of course, I seeked out the other kids at school that would go to the pub at lunchtime and smoke dope in the cars at lunchtime. And somehow I managed to get through that schooling. I don't know how, but I did. Um, it was both fun and hard work. I both loved it and hated it. But I did manage to finish that apprenticeship. I don't know how. I had a break of 18 months in the middle of it because the first boss who, oh, he got rid of me because I was useless. Mm. I'm happy to say that today looking yeah. back. I was just that useless kid, just always drunk or stoned. And you know, I think I was just there to get the money. So he got rid of me. I had about an 18-month break and then... You know, in the meantime, I got into trouble with the police and things started happening. Life was unravelling in general. The people, you know, the good people that I knew were more pushing me away and I was falling mm. in with, you know, more and more bad people. I don't blame them. I was falling in with them because maybe because I was a bad person too. Mm. So I'm not, I'm not about to start you know, blaming, I fell in with the wrong crowd. No, I seeked out the wrong crowd and actively joined them and actively become one of them because mm. that's where my head was at. Um, yeah, I was alienating what you would call normal society and accepting more the darker side. And um, look, eventually some friends of mine actually convinced me i said look mate what are you doing you got a fantastic trade go back and finish her. what the hell are you doing and actually for you know for once i think i just listened to someone that was trying to help me out yeah so i went back and i, I did finish that apprenticeship but as soon as i finished they got rid of me too because i had issues there mm. as well i remember the boss made me go see a psychologist <laughs> he <laughs> said you can go on work time but just go <laughs> and um 
<laughs> so they didn't dock me they just let me do it and um but look i was on a downhill spiral at that point um to this day the longest i've held a single job was that first go at my apprenticeship where i lasted two years and three months wow and and i'm now 59 and that is still the longest job i've ever held so um yeah once i became qualified i tended to subcontract that because i could just never hold jobs and Mm. i worked for myself but made a mess of everything that i touched um i made a mess of all my relationships i did manage to maintain interests like i was i had you know hobbies and sports but um yeah i managed to just sort of alienate everyone everywhere i went and um was generally not very popular but also made friends wherever i went too but mm. the, the ratio of friends made to people i alienated That's... was pretty high ratio oh, yeah. and um and my solution to all of that was drink more and take more drugs mm. and so what uh, sort of drugs were you taking at that point so apart from alcohol i became a very heavy dope smoker that's probably over the years the thing i did the most but then, you know, I discovered amphetamines and they had a similar effect to alcohol in terms of, you know, being a social lubricant. I could take amphetamines and just go and talk to people and actually not bring all my hang-ups and problems with me. Um, I probably confidence talking to women, you mm. know, picking up. Yeah. Um uh, yeah, just, I don't know, it allowed me to look at life like I just had no problems. Like I was Superman, not mm. quite, but yeah, you know, Superman in comparison to what I normally am, which was, yeah, not very social, uh, very anti-social. Um, yeah, I just could say the right things. Mm. So it must have been quite difficult not having jobs for very long and getting enough money and things like that. So what was life like for you? Well, I spent a lot of time on the dole. But then obviously I engaged in illegal activity to sustain, you know, buying the drugs that I need to buy. Um, More within the realms of the drugs themselves. I wasn't, I didn't go around robbing people. I never, ever got into that. I never burgled houses. I never got into any of that. Um, It was more dealing and growing and doing things like that. Um, or I would just go to work and earn the money because I had also had periods where I did work and I was a pretty good earner when I was working. But yeah. And then I would have periods where I stopped doing everything. I would save a heap of money. I might buy a house now. Nah, I'd just go and blow it all on <laughs> drugs and alcohol and back to square one. So I didn't. I wasn't achieving much in in terms of setting myself up for for when I'm older, like for now. Yeah. Um. But funny enough, I always maintained my interests, as in always had a sport and a hobby that I maintained, and um, and I would give them priority as well. For some reason, there's one thing my father always said to me. Basically, there were two things he told me that I heard that and thought, "Yep, that sounds right." And he said to have a qualification. Yeah. Yeah, whether you got the bit of paper or not, but something you are an expert in yeah. and a sport slash hobby. And I adopted that view and I've always had 
an interest, a hobby all the way through, irrespective of what I did with the drinking and drugging, mm. always had something there that I maintained. And I often say that that partially saved me as well because mm. my head could get into something apart from self-destruction. Yeah. So, so what caused you to seek help? Well, funny thing is, the first time I tried to get help, I was in my early 20s. So right from the get-go, I knew there was a problem. I didn't quite know what it was. Um, I didn't know what help to look for, but I did start going to places for drug, alcohol counselling and all of that, did detoxes, things like that. But nothing changed. always went back, you know, just that revolving door. Um, And as time went on, things just got worse. Every time I went back to it, it got worse. The drinking got worse. The drugging got worse. Yeah, it was it was pretty bad. And every time I got help, it was only for a limited time, and then I would fall straight back in. So I thought that hanging around with straight people, and when I say straight, as in not drug addicts, not alcoholics, yeah. I'll say sober people, actually. Um I would hang around with these people. We'd do great stuff, you know. But ultimately, in the end, I'd look at them. There no. was something strange going on here. The cogs turning in their head didn't have teeth missing like mine. Yeah. My cogs had teeth missing and bits yeah. broken off. This machine would jam up and be smoking, mm. <laughs> as in, yeah, lack of oil. Um, they seemed to function normal. They would say... I'm going to buy a house. And within 12 months, they've saved the deposit and, and got that house. I'd save mm. the deposit and then go back to what I was doing and blow it all again because mm. I couldn't face the responsibility and the commitment. I found that these people had some qualities that I was just different and I had qualities that they didn't have, as in bad qualities. Or should I say, not bad, but dysfunctional qualities. Mm. I knew there was a difference between me and them. I couldn't work out why. Because the Mm. term, the idea of I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict didn't enter my mind in the way it does today. That we're people that are not well. We are people that are different from normal people in society. It's, yeah, but I didn't, back then I'm, I'm seeing there's something, but I couldn't work it out. And I couldn't work out why... I was going through so many friends and chaos and everywhere I go, I would get into fights. When I say fights, not punching on at that time. I'm talking Mm. just verbal, emotional fights, chaos. Life was just chaotic. I'd make all these big plans and hardly any of them would materialize. I couldn't make long-term plans. Um, I couldn't stick at anything. I couldn't hold jobs, and when I did get a job, I'd be blueing with everyone in no time. So just engaging in gossip and crap, just stuff that is not constructive, just being angry at people for just being who they were because Mm. they didn't conform to what I thought they should be. Yeah. It's a very, which now I've, I've found out is very typical amongst people with my issues yeah i also didn't quite understand that i had ptsd as well and that creates some really radical unsavory Mm. behavior very antisocial behavior 
And when I look back, it's like, well, I've had PTSD since I was a little kid. Yeah. And that is such a destructive force. And then trying to self-medicate that as well. So really, in the end, what I was doing was I was prescribing myself my own medication for my PTSD. I just didn't know it. And that's why when I would stop a few months later, I'm looking around at life and I cannot relate to any of it. People that I was initially getting along with, these new friends or old friends that I went back to, as in the ones that was Mm. clean and sober, as in they were never addicts to begin with. Mm. Yeah, I could relate to them for so long. Like there was a honeymoon period, but then the honeymoon is over and this is daily grind and I just could not. Couldn't do it. Couldn't relate to them. Life was just alien to me. Normal life was just alien to me. It was like people, some people said to me, mate, it's like you're from a a parallel universe, like a parallel reality where I suppose, look, today in the computer age, you would probably say, mate, your operating system is different to ours. It doesn't, they don't interact very well. There's very limited communication. It's, yeah. So, what did it? What what ended up happening was just one disappointment after another, and then eventually, this has happened so many times that why why bother? Why bother? It just gets you know. It, I just fall flat on my face every single time, and in the meantime, the jobs are lasting less and less. So I'm talking about getting a job and being sacked within the first day. Wow. Within right. four hours. And yeah. work-wise, I've done nothing wrong. My work was always of a high quality. Even yeah. when I look back, I still say my work has always been of high quality. Mm. And um, But my social people just couldn't handle being around me. Yeah. I was just too radical for them yeah. and too negative, too socially destructive, just... You're on this. You're in this other universe, mate. You're not in our world. <laughs> Go. <laughs> well, listen. We might take a break there. Um, we've got another song. This one's called "Girls on Girls on the Avenue" by Richard Clapton. Oh man. 
Show. Squatters and unwaged airwaves. Presenting views, news and interviews from the Centrelink queues. Information on your squatting, legal and other rights. Troublemaking news from around the world. Coming at you every Friday between 5.30 and 6.30pm on 3CR. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Ah, welcome back. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital, live streaming on 3cr.org.au. And today I'm talking with Claude and we're talking about alcoholism and recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so Claude, before the break we were talking about the I guess the depths you got to with your drug and alcohol use. So coming into I think it was NA first. So yep. what what was that like for you coming across people who had the same problem as you? Well, look, I, I had actually been introduced to NA Narcotics Anonymous years beforehand, but I was not via you know via being in detox and rehab, but I was just not in a state or a place to accept that. Yep. Thought, oh yeah, they're all just full of it, whatever. I think the reason I accepted it in the end is because I'd stopped fighting. And what I do remember, I think it all that all started six months prior when I remember saying to myself, okay, here you are again. What are you going to do this time? What am I going to do? Am I going to go to rehab? Yeah, right. Or detox? Yeah, but mate, I can go seven days without anyway. I can go a lot longer. So what's detox going to do? Um, am I going to go to rehab? Um, I thought, yeah, but I've done all that before. That's just temporary relief. Maybe I'll go see a psychologist. Yeah, done that before. You know, peer support groups, done it all. Been there, done that. So what is the grand plan? I remember asking myself, so what's your grand plan this time? And that's where I came to the realisation 
that I am now at that point I was 48 or just turned 49 and I said to myself mate there is no green plan all these green plans have done nothing but fail doing things my way does not work never has and I think I've got to a point where I'm finally going to admit it never will I do not have the answer so I said give up accept the fact that I'm just going to be found dead in a gutter with a bottle in one hand bag of dope in the other hand and a needle hanging out of my arm that is your destiny accept it and I actually I gave up on fighting mm. little did I know that that was exactly what I had to do I looked at that as this is the depths of despair the end yeah this is the end mm. you, you're going to be dead soon that's actually what saved my life and I learnt later on why because as long as I was fighting I was fighting I had yep. to stop fighting. So what happened was about six months later, I was just a young lady I was hanging around with. Um, you know, we we're doing a little bit of drinking, a bit of gear, you know, a bit of amphetamines and that. And one day, you know, I went over there, said, yep, you got it all lined up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go. And she, I could see she was hesitating and she just looked at me and said, look, mate, she goes, I'm on you know, a waiting list to go into rehab. My kids are wards of the state. I've got to get better and not keep doing this. She said, can we go to an NA meeting instead? I just looked at her and thought, what? Uh, oh, yeah, okay. So off we went. Just <laughs> like, hmm, <laughs> what am I doing this for? Um, you know, maybe deep down I knew there was something in it. I don't know. I had been before, but I totally rejected it. So we went, and yeah, it was actually a good meeting. I heard stuff. Maybe I was just ready to listen because I stopped fighting. I yeah. think I was just open mm. to whatever came along. And I heard people talking in a way that gave me hope. That's what I would have to say. They gave me hope. People whose stories were actually worse than mine. And mm. I'm looking at someone that, mate, this is not an act. That yeah. person is not blowing smoke up me. That person's telling the truth. Yeah. These people seem actually happy. And they've got time up, more time. Well, there were the ones that didn't, but the mm. ones that had more time up than I had ever gone in my life without. Mm. But they seemed happy. And I heard several people speak, but most importantly, after the meeting, three blokes came up to me individually, not not together. And I spoke with these three fellas, and when I left with this young lady, I said to her, them three blokes I spoke to, like, they're the real deal, aren't they? She said, oh, yeah, mm. yeah, because I said, they're asking me stuff. They were interested in my personal life. But I had not at any point got the feeling, what are you trying to get out of me? Mm. That never came. Yeah. Interested in your well-being, I think. Yeah. 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 I thought they are real. Two mm. weeks later, two weeks went by and we caught up again. And we'll get same thing. We're going to go and yeah. get on the gear, get on the grog. And she said the same thing. She goes, oh, do you mind if we just go to this meeting instead? Oh, what? I said, which one? She said, the same one as last time. I said, oh. Will those three blokes be there? She said, yeah, they're there all the time. So, okay, let's go. So already the impression they left on me left me wanting to go back. Yeah. And I did. 
and they were there and we spoke again and the part I'll never forget was they all remembered my name individually. I didn't mm. speak to them together. Mm. They all remembered my name. They remembered what I did for a living part-time and they remembered a, a sport that I told them yeah. that I do. Yeah. And I thought, wow, and they're not trying to get something out of me. <laughs> and that left me thinking, wow, maybe, maybe there's an answer here. The following week she did go to rehab she was gone and I went back to doing what I was doing but they left such an impression on me that I thought I'm going back this time on my side of town because that was on the other side of town and I found some local meetings and I started going and it, it went from there mm. it went from there and um, all it really did if I have to nail one thing that it did it left me feeling that this is possible that's what it did. Mm. They're actually, I've tried everything and everything has failed, but so have all these people. They all tell the same story. Mm. Maybe, just maybe, if I hang around here, this might happen to me as well. Yeah. And that's where it, it went from there. So then fast forward, um, suddenly I had two and a half years I'll say clean because at the time I was in NA and they used that yeah. terminology. Yeah. But unfortunately, my ego took over and started telling me that, oh, you don't need this anymore. You're pretty good. You've done well. Um, you've got a bit of a life outside going on. Um, yeah, you can walk away from this. And that was obviously a mistake because that's what the disease of addiction and alcoholism tells us. Yeah. It tells us we're well. Yeah. And that we don't need it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, uh, yeah. So I did walk away and thought, oh, I can drink now. I can have, um, you know, a beer or a wine with my meals, the occasional beer, because all my friends do drink, but that's because they're not alcoholics. Yeah. Um, and they were telling me, don't, don't do it. No, oh, I'll be right. I'll be right. And no, I fell flat on my face. Um, the good part was that I didn't touch any of the other drugs. I only drank, but I soon realized that <laughs> that alone is enough. <laughs> I don't yeah. need to touch the other stuff. This is going to destroy me anyway. And I noticed, yeah, what it started doing to me because after having a bit of recovery to then go back to it, it's like, wow, it's really, it is a profound change yeah. I mean my whole psyche the mm. way I feel the way I think the way I start I relate to people and I just saw that destruction coming back all over again what I did do right two things I reckon I did right one is I didn't go back to the other drugs yeah. I stuck to just the one but I kept going to meetings and in the meantime I decided to try AA yeah um and I went to AA meetings all the way through and what I happened to find was a lot of people saying we did exactly what you did you can't do that mm. you know we th we were on the drugs and that thought oh yeah we can drink no good it doesn't work you have to it's total absence or, yeah, or nothing yeah so in the meantime I've come to five and a half years sober and um what can I say about my life it is not all chaos and madness anymore I have good friendships and I've saved friendships that in the past I had to avoid these people to say, to, to keep the friendships and now I don't have to avoid them anymore. Um, 
I'm getting along well with my relatives. You know, I've got friends that I've had for decades and I'm into various different sports and hobbies that all involve knowing other people. And whilst I don't get along with everyone, yeah. I am not at war with the world anymore. <laughs> and the reason I'm not at war with the world is because I'm not at war with myself. Yeah. I do not mm. hate myself anymore. And I cannot believe that simple thing of not hating myself means that the rest of life runs a hell of a lot more in harmony mm. in general with the world, with everyone. And when I do get into a disagreement with someone, I generally know when to walk away, when to say, you know what, smashing my head against a brick wall here, yeah. <laughs> or I'm blatantly in the wrong here, walk away. Yeah. Those simple things, to be able to do that, just means that, yeah, I'm not at war with the world and life is more peaceful it's more harmony on my um, elderly mother's full-time carer now i do work part-time but i don't send all my clients running to the hills to get away (laughs) from me because i'm i can have a harmonious relationship with them and um whatever i go to do i can simply do it and get into it and i'm not in this fear of it all unraveling i don't live in the fear of what's going to happen Mm. or then sabotage it and make it happen i don't have that need to self-destruct anymore and who Mm. would have thought that you know that already reached 50 i actually had a relapse at 53 and i'm still undoing a lifetime of destruction and most importantly it's now left me in a state where i'm no longer very depressed i still have ptsd but i can deal with it without self-medicating that alone is just a triumph yeah. That's a major yeah. victory yeah. in life. In other words, it can be done. So my message to anyone out there listening is no matter how hopeless and in despair you may be feeling, there is a way out. There's hope, yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if anybody would like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you can call them on one three hundred triple two triple two, or you can go online at aa.org.au for more information on recovery from alcoholism. So that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Claude for sharing his drinking and drugging recovery story with us. And thank you about, for having me. Talking about how Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous helped him. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when my co-host Anne will be talking to Rhonda from Canada about dealing with the effects of alcoholism on a relative or friend with the help of Al-Anon family groups. Coming up next, we've got um, Balanois, The Spirit of Wire hosted by Uncle Telgium Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco in the spirit of war on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.